we want to go into the weeds with where people actually live because the way that we're going to equip and disciple people is we're actually going to talk about the things they're facing every day. And what they're facing is a bombardment from society of ideologies that are umbilical and everything from sexuality to gender issues to race. Um, there's so many things. Victimhood is elevated mm -hmm. as a virtue. And so we have to teach them to think about these things because they are fish swimming in water that they don't even realize that they're swamped in every day. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have a perspective for learning how to see it and understand it, then yeah, uh, they're going to get devoured. And, and so, yeah, we've had people as we've addressed things who think, you know, well, if we just, you know, if we just be really nice and maybe, and they just, they just don't know what time it is. That's what we say. They just don't understand what time it is. They, they, they think we're living in a different time than what we're living in. Hmm. Um, but most of people, it's been the opposite. It's drawing people who say we're seeking green pasture. Truth. Same sheep. here. Sheep are looking for green pasture right now. Still waters. So churches that are willing to feed sheep, yeah. sheep are flocking to. Yeah, they are, aren't they? And here's what's interesting. I think it's very different than what was happening in the sheep swapping era of seeker sensitive church who can have the coolest church the bells and whistles and we just you know we saw sheep swapping going on for whoever had the coolest kids ministry and whoever had the most youth you know going there and i think that day's over but what's interesting is i do think people are leaving churches to go to strong churches and i think the trend we're going to see in the next 10 years the next 20 years is i think churches that don't know what time it is are going to fade into irrelevance mm they're going to hmm. die because they're not going to be discipling people in the very things they're facing. Hmm. They're, they're, I mean, Francis Schaeffer talked about this. He talked about how the, the goal of the church is to disciple people in the total truth of reality in whatever issues they're facing every day. So we're trying to bring to bear what the truth about reality is in a world where attacks against that reality are constant and and, and, they, and they are in the different form of different things in di different generations but the church that's faithful is looking at how to do that in their generation welcome to grounded i'm steve hartland senior pastor at cornerstone community church in joppa maryland which is north of baltimore if you want to locate us and uh, I have a guest with me today. He is the author of this book. Let me hold it up. There it is. It's called Hold the Line, and his name is Eric Reed. So we're going to discuss his book. So welcome, Eric. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure. Let's, let's find out about you a little bit first, if you don't mind. So like, uh, where are you born and raised? I'm Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, born raised near Maryland, near, near Baltimore, Maryland. How about you? So I am actually born and raised in the same town that I pastor in. So from Lebanon, Tennessee. Just wow. outside of Nashville. Wow. You born and yeah, raised went, there. Went to Lebanon High School. Yeah. <laughs> um, and went to the Army for four years. So during that time, I was away. But other than that, this has always been home. Wow. Where, where'd you go in the Army? You went some overseas? Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I was in the 82nd Airborne Division. Jumped out of airplanes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was a younger man uh, in those days. Yeah. How's your back? Um, I've had back surgery years ago. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. So it's good now. Uh, Everybody but, I've ever met who jumps has a bad back. Yeah, those bulging discs, uh, it's hard to take that pounding. Yeah. So. Well, I'm glad you're good now. Yeah. Tell us about your education. Where'd you go to college? Where'd you do grad school? What all you got? 
Yep, went to Western Kentucky University, which is about an hour and 15 minutes from um, where I live now. Went GI Bill, paid for it all. Uh, did a religious studies major and a history minor. And then um, after that, I went to Vanderbilt Divinity School for about uh, a year and a half, three semesters. Vanderbilt, before, yes. Yeah, before uh, finally saying enough is enough. Yeah. I, I can't keep subjecting myself to this. Huh. And I uh, went to Southern Seminary and finished my MDiv there. Yeah, way to go, man. Likewise, I'm an MDiv. So you probably never heard of the school I went to. It was near D.C. It's now been subsumed by, it's operating under the auspices of Lancaster, Pennsylvania Bible College, but it's Capital Bible Seminary, which was basically a smaller East Coast Dallas theological seminary. So oh, I was okay. I was saved when I was 18, 17, went right to college when I was 18, and it was all like Dallas theology Heavy, yeah. heavy duty dispensationalism yeah, and all yeah. this. Yeah, that was my background. Okay. Nice. I've had a r- few root canals since then. <laughs> a little drilling and you. filling. Yeah. So I, I'm assuming you're you're a family man. You're married. You got some kids. Tell us about it. Yep. I am married uh, to my wife, Katrina. We hit our 20 year anniversary last year. Congrats. And, uh, have three children. Uh, Caleb, who uh, is with the Lord, uh, passed away a couple years ago. Mm. Uh, he was 15 years old. Mm. And then I have two daughters. Uh, Kaylee and Kyra, who are 13 and 9. 13 and 9. Just so you'll know, uh, my wife and I have four sons and a foster son, and we just had grandchild number 13, bro. It's riches, let me tell you. It's riches. 13 grandkids. And they all live close to us. So, man, we have grandkids in our life. Yeah, That's awesome. We'll probably see and hold the baby tonight. So uh, you're pastor of the Journey Church. Tell us about the Journey Church. It's been around a while. In fact, I think I read you were part of the Journey Church, not as a pastor, some years ago. Is that correct? Or am I confusing um, you? Well, I, I was a part of planning the Journey Church. So I was a co-pastor of, of planting the church 17 years ago. Um, we were planted by a, a local church. And um, yeah, <laughs> I was 25 years old, had no idea what I was doing, but I had a passion. I was really passionate, which is what young men at least have, if nothing else. And, um, and yeah, I thought we were starting one kind of church, you know, you know, 17 years later, we're a very different kind of church by the grace of God. Um, but yeah, God has really just blessed our church. We've, you know, we've seen in, incredible things happen, ministries that are just, you know, really making an impact in the community, seeing people come to faith, discipling them. Uh, but yeah, I've been there 17 years. Pretty awesome, man. Love it. So you're the author of this book. I'll show it again. Hold the line. Yep. I read this recently, really loved it. And that's how come we're talking, by the way. That's what attracted me to you. But I think you've written some others, have you? What are they? Yeah, I wrote a book called Uncommon Trust, uh, where I talked about trusting God in the midst of suffering and um, mm-hmm. learning to understand um, you know, what it means to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, which is the battle that you go through when you face um, suffering and trials of many kinds is you want to understand it. You want to wrap your mind around it. And while trusting the Lord with all your hearts it makes for a great bumper sticker, um, mm. It's a hard mm. thing to actually do when you're in the middle of, of crisis. And 17 years of pastoring coupled with 15 years of having a son with medical issues, that had to be a real thing for us. Uh, we had to really learn what it meant to trust. So I wrote a book on how you trust the Lord. And the the synopsis is, is you have to actually trust in the Lord. You have to know him. Yet You can't trust who you don't know. And so the attributes of God actually help us in trusting God. And so I, I tie how the attributes of God actually give us a confidence in his promises and, and the things that we're going through. Pretty sweet. 
All right. I haven't read that one, but it sounds good. I'll recommend it. So, uh, Eric, you wrote this book. I'll hold it up a third time. Going to be obnoxious doing this. Here it is. Hold the line. Why did you write this book? Like in big picture first, then we'll go into some details. What is it about? Why did the world need this book? Or to put it another way, uh, what problems are you trying to address? And before I can do the floor yet, I'm going to ask it another way. So many years ago, I was very sick. I was like 30s and I was sick, man, and we couldn't figure out what's wrong. And I went to see this doctor. He was supposed to be a really great doctor in Riverside, California. And he was an old crotchety guy, scored really low on agreeableness, man. He didn't agree with nobody about nothing. So he said, young man, medicine is diagnosis, and diagnosis is history. So give me the history. That's kind of how he was. So medicine is diagnosis. What are you diagnosing? What, what needed a cure or a fix? Why did you write this book? So several things. One, as I've pastored uh, in the middle of a very rapidly changing culture, right? When I started the church, it was 2000 and five slash six time frame, right? When our core group met mm -hmm. and we started launching out um, actually publicly and meeting. And um, from 2005 and six to today, we've undergone incredible changes in our society. Um, belief in God, um, social justice movements, so many different things, um, LGBTQ plus issues. All these things have just swept through our country and has drastically changed um, what people think is good, beautiful, and true, right? The, the old mm. triad, right? Mm. And so um, pastoring in the midst of that um, has been interesting because I'm watching how people are facing these different pressures and these strains. And, um, and on top of that, uh, I guess it was 2010, the Lord opened the door for me uh, to begin speaking to students at student camps and different student ministry events. Mm. And um, I've had a chance to speak to tens of thousands of students over the years. And um, they are the ones that are on the front lines of this stuff. Uh, they're the ones who I think are most vulnerable uh, to the to the lies and to be taken captive by these yeah, really philosophies are. and empty deceits. And so I started watching even as I spoke and interacted in those places and with student pastors, just the pressures that people were facing and students were facing. And um, the church, on top of that, wasn't necessarily responding to prepare people, to give them the foundations, to equip them for how to think Christianly in a very rapidly unchristian culture. And so that was the basis of the book. And of course, uh, hold the line is a kind of a military term, right? Holding the line yeah. is like holding the battlefront line. And, mm -hmm. and being in my background, um, you know, I figured the two, uh, the combination made sense, right? Let's, we need the church and we need believers to learn how to hold the line against a culture that's trying to continue to take ground. Yeah. I think I hear Jocko Willink. I listen to him occasionally. And I heard Jocko <laughs> use that phrase, you know, with his Navy SEAL background. Hold the line. Hold the so, line. That's so, right. So I like it. So, so yeah, on page four you mentioned, and I'm not going to go page by page through your book. We'll be here three days. But uh, you mentioned that there's an onslaught of cultural pressure to conform to beliefs and practices that others deem acceptable. You just kind of mentioned some of those a few minutes ago. But uh, so we know what they are. It's like, you know, the cultural revolution, the sexual revolution, the LGBTQ yeah. plus the um, gender confusion stuff, all and you know, all the woke stuff, all that going on. Yep. Uh, what What would you say? How great is the pressure on the average Christian in your church or the average family in your church? Oh, it's real. I mean, here we are uh, in the Bible Belt. This is how I knew it was getting uh, <laughs> it was getting real. Uh, is we're here in the Bible Belt, right? Maybe arguably the buckle of the hmm. Bible Belt, hmm. and uh, 
we're seeing our folks deal with this and their corporate jobs uh, in yeah. the university that's here in our town. Um, you, you know, it's like, no, it's right here in, in Lebanon. And that's how I knew like, okay, this is pervasive, right? This is pervasive. This is growing in, in its uh, reach because of social media. It now has a medium for propagating ideas rapidly. And so that for me was the, that was the sign that I was like, this is, this is drastically uh, taking ground. And the church is so far from being equipped for this. It's like, um, you know, in World War II, when the, the Nazi war machine just started taking over Europe, um, you know, the U.S. didn't deploy for a while. A lot of people don't realize that. Like, it took the U.S. years to build up their military because it had been so depleted. Hmm. Um, you know, post-World War One, you, you know, the U.S. posture towards war was, is we don't want anything to do with it. We're kind of isolationist. We don't want to get involved in all that European stuff again. And as a result of that, when it finally was like, oh, no, we're under threat, too. Like, this is going to touch our shore if we don't get this right. Yeah, we we weren't ready. And I feel like that's where the church is. Like, we were so used to just skirting through. Most people mirrored our ethical, moral beliefs. Most people generally respected Christians, even if they weren't born again themselves. And now that's all changed. And we've got a church looking around and Christians looking around going, what do we do? Because we actually never really put those roots in. Yeah, somebody is arguing, several people are arguing that uh, this has been coming slowly. You know how tipping points are, it's slow, it's yep. slow, it's slow until it's not, right? All of a sudden there's a tipping point and boom. And it seems like uh, some are saying that the, the gradual build began at the Enlightenment when we left off rooting everything in God and doctrine and scripture and revealed truth. And uh, it's been building slowly, slowly, but man, did it ever bust out recently in the U.S., huh? Yeah, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Aaron Wren's yeah. uh, three. I've actually had him on the podcast. Yeah, his three his framework for the three worlds of evangelicalism, I think, is a helpful grid for thinking about what's changed and how it's changed, right? From positive world to neutral world and negative world. Yeah, the Enlightenment period was the beginning of really the societies and the Western world's questioning of authority, um, right? When Martin Luther, yeah. uh, you know, launched the Reformation, it was good in many ways, but one of the side effects was, is, you know, we're skeptical of the church's authority. We're skeptical of what they're saying about these things. And um, we're downstream from that now where uh, we don't even, we, we're skeptical of even the word truth. Uh, we mm-hmm. put, we put my truth and his truth and her truth in front of the word now, right? We put yes. pronouns in, <laughs> in yeah. front of the word truth. Instead of, well, what's God's truth on this, right? Yeah. Well, what God's is the truth, yeah. you know, uh, is really almost an irrelevant question today. That's considered an irrelevant question. It's not. There's no the truth. There's my truth. Yeah, and, we're right um, back with Pilate when Jesus was before him, right? And Pilate says, "What is truth?" I'm actually preaching that this week. We're in the Gospel of John, and I, that's my text this week. Oh, <laughs> uh, we've been in the Gospel of John, by the way. We did John chapter six recently. Now we're in John chapter ten, and in between there around Easter, we did John 19 on Good Friday and John 20 on Resurrection Day. So nice. we're loving the Gospel of John. But incidentally, so we're about to go to Deuteronomy, so that ought to be go. fun. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Gospel of John, loving it. So yeah. um, let me ask a, a specific now, because things you're talking about made me think of this. So how does this affect people in your town? How does this affect people in our town and in our churches? So uh, we have some teachers, public school teachers. You probably do too. We have a public school principal. She actually resigned mm. and isn't working this year because she said, I can't work over there anymore. You know, I just can't. I can't agree to what they, I can't say what they want me to say. But um, what would you say to a teacher They've got a classroom, and they're being told 
uh, when that girl says she's a boy and wants to be called Bill, you must call the boy Bill. What's, what do you tell that teacher? Yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah. Um, you know, I wrote an article on whether Christians should use people's preferred pronouns um, because of this very issue, um, because we've got people in the workplace and corporate settings that are facing that. It's real life, right? Whether it be at school or at work, um, you know, call me, call me they, them, you know, when it's yeah. an individual. Yeah. So th this is how I help them think about it. Um, we don't want to live according to laws, right? We don't want to embrace laws. Rod Dreher, live not by lies. Absolutely. We may not be able to change the culture with our message, with our, uh, with what we think is right, but we don't have to bend the knee to what we know is wrong. Hmm. And I, I think that's a good starting point. So, uh, Paul says, you know, if possible, live at peace with all men. Uh, so long, so far as it depends on you, Live at peace with all men. That's a really important verse because what that means is that the goal is peace. We, we don't want to live on the war path with everybody every day and poking holes in everybody's worldview. We want peace with people. But so long as that peace depends on us and what, what I'm finding is in the, the school settings and at work settings and things like that, they are putting Christians in position where it's no longer dependent on them. Mm -hmm. So far as it depends on me, I'm going to have peace. But now you're putting me in a position where the peace being held is not dependent on me anymore. You're forcing hmm. a different posture. And so I do think Christians are going to have to really consider their relationship um, to different types of institutions and, and yeah. environments. And we've got to be prepared to say, my, my conscience convicts me and I'm not going to call you a, a pronoun that I don't think is accurate. Now, that doesn't mean we should go out of our way to you know, get ourselves fired. offend. Yeah. Um, I think, in fact, we should go out of our way to try to avoid controversy where we can. So if you've got a male employee telling you that he wants to be called she, her, I think you ought to avoid ever saying she, her, but maybe just use the name. Right. Can um, I use your last name? Yes, right. Ref yeah. Just find whatever ways you can find a way to avoid to have peace. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to bow the knee simply because somebody's tell you embrace a alternate reality than the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to all that. Switching gears a little bit. So on page 22, we're all, we're up to 22 already. Um, you're, you're talking about Jesus. And I think you're even mentioning John six there and you get to talking about Jesus and the seeker church thing, you know, in John six and even up through John 10, mm -hmm. the crowd gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And like, all we right. had to do was give them bread, right? Just wanted yeah. bread. Give us some more That's bread. Right. Can we have this bread always? And if he just said, sure, I got to keep my crowd here, you know, so I'll just give you bread, all the bread you want, free bread. But uh, so what about Jesus and the secret church? Was Jesus a church growth guru? Did he develop and work a methodology for attracting and keeping a large crowd and so on? You want to talk about all that? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the point I'm trying to raise there is, you know, every time you see Jesus with crowds around him, he's usually going to say something offensive yes. pretty quickly. Um, yes. That tends to be his pattern. So, you know, it's funny, John tells us like great crowds were following him. And then he stands up and tells people, eat my flesh and drink, drink my, my blood, blood. right? Uh -huh. um, or, or in Luke 14, it says great crowds followed him. And he tells them, unless you hate your father and mother. And yeah. I mean, it's the very first thing out of his mouth. Yeah. Um, and so people, people began to grapple with the hard sayings of Jesus, but he wasn't concerned with simply drawing a crowd. He wasn't concerned with just 
let's just see if we can keep everybody, you know, kind of tenuously connected to the movement here. Um, he was there to speak truth. And, and, and what that did is truth alienates people. Um, some people embrace the truth. Some people are seeking the truth. Some people hate the truth and it alienates them when it's spoken, no matter, no matter how nicely you speak it. Uh, I think that's one of the challenges that we're running into in our, our world today is I think we got believers who think that if we're just kind enough, nice enough, nice, you know, Thody's 11th command. If we just say it with enough, you know, gentleness, that it's somehow going to change the posture of the people receiving it. And it's just, that's a farce. It's not, you can be as kind and gentle and loving and soft in delivering truth as you want. And it's not your delivery. It's your message. It's the truth. Yeah. No matter how nicely you say it, when, when you still say men are men and women are women, you're in trouble. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You're going against. So we've developed a culture that in many ways has a doctrine and a dogma. They have evangelists and preachers. There are heretics and there is communication. Amen. And Christians who believe the Bible are the heretics who are threatened to be excommunicated from the public square and from the you know social discourse at every turn, yeah, um, we're, the, cancel, we're the new evil people. culture, right? But it's it's excommunication. It's yes. you you're a blasphemer. Is yeah. what it is. You're out. You're out. Yeah, yeah. Amen to that. On page twenty four, you mentioned staying on the same theme that allegiance to Jesus produces conflict, even within families, sometimes within marriages, sometimes certainly in societies. And I'm going to add in churches. So um, over, over these very issues now, especially, right? I mean, we're really yeah. seeing that where uh, families are divided up over woke stuff. People leave churches over woke stuff. You had any of that in, in your church? Have you had any um, people saying that you should just be nice and uh, don't say anything that could be offensive because then we can't bring our friends and all that kind of stuff? We've had some people who have mentioned that. Um, you know, since 2015, so if you follow, you know, Ren's framework, that's that's roughly uh 1415 is when uh, things shifted dramatically. I, I think you can trace it down back to um, the Michael Brown, Ferguson, Missouri um, mm. shooting. And I think that's when all the social justice stuff really was a tipping point in society, followed by the Obergefell uh, case. And those things rapidly brought change. What's interesting is since 2015 to the day, all the COVID stuff and all, all the election 2020 stuff. I mean, it's, it, we've had this societal chaos, chaos. Uh, yeah. you know, for years now. And yet we've grown uh, tremendously, not by tiptoeing around issues, um, but by just speaking about them intelligently, uh, biblically. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's something we gotta, uh, we gotta make sure if we think that we can avoid talking about those issues and we're helping people those days that pass, like, you know, just thinking like if we just have the coolest bells and whistles at our church, mm-hmm. people are going to come. They don't care. Um, being a Christian is not giving you social status anymore. In fact, it's going to cost you social cost credit you. to be a Christian, which means they're not going to go to church. You know, if they're not if if they're not really seeking the Lord or seeking the truth, there's no positive net gain it's going to give them. So they're not going to look for something that's just kind of cool and fluffy. They need substance. They need to be trained. They need to be equipped. They want to learn how to think. So, so I, I say that to say, we've been addressing these issues um, in a way 
that is um, talking honestly about them, looking biblically at them, without, though, becoming what I think you have down the road from me in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, in an individual by the name of Greg Locke, who is you know, boisterous, political focus, Uh, you know, uh rants and raves, and he does things for shock value. We're not interested in being a slightly more Christian version than Hannity. You know what I mean? Like we're not, we're not trying to, to be the political folks. We, we want to address things. We want to, you know, we, we, we don't, we want to go into the weeds with where people actually live. Because the way that we're going to equip and disciple people is we're actually going to talk about the things they're facing every day. And what they're facing is a bombardment from society of ideologies that are umbilical. And everything from sexuality to gender issues to race, um, there's so many things. Victimhood is elevated as a virtue. And so we have to teach them to think about these things because they are fish swimming in water that they don't even realize that they're swamped in every day. Hmm. And if they don't have a perspective for learning how to see it and understand it, then yeah, uh, they're going to get devoured. And, and so, yeah, we've had people as we've addressed things who think, you know, well, if we just, you know, if we just be really nice and maybe, and they just, they just don't know what time it is. That's what we say. They just don't understand what time it is. They, they, they think we're living in a different time than what we're living in. Hmm. Um, but most of people, it's been the opposite. It's drawing people who say we're seeking green pasture. Truth. Same sheep. here. Sheep are looking for green pasture right now. Still waters. So churches that are willing to feed sheep, yeah. sheep are flocking to. Yeah, they are, aren't they? And here's what's interesting. I think it's very different than what was happening in the sheep swapping era of seeker sensitive church who can have the coolest church, the bells and whistles. And we just, you know, we saw sheep swapping going on for whoever had the coolest kids ministry and whoever had the most youth, you know, going there. And I think that day's over. But what's interesting is I do think people are leaving churches to go to strong churches. And I think the trend we're going to see in the next 10 years, the next 20 years, is I think churches that don't know what time it is are going to fade into irrelevance. Mm. They're going to Mm. die because they're not going to be discipling people in the very things they're facing. Mm. They're, they're, I mean, Francis Schaeffer talked about this. He talked about how the, the goal of the church is to disciple people in the total truth of reality in whatever issues they're facing every day. So we're trying to bring to bear what the truth about reality is in a world where attacks against that reality are constant. And, 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 they, and they are in the different form of different things in di- different generations. But the church that's faithful is looking at how to do that in their generation. So I think what's going to happen is that your faithful churches are actually going to grow larger um, and you're going to see many churches begin to die and fade into irrelevance. They're going to die out as they're literally as their congregation ages and and they're gone. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you guys saw this. You probably did. So uh, uh, COVID hit our, our governor who was pretty fair to churches, pretty fair to everybody. We all appreciated him, but he shut us all down, but only for about, I don't know, I forget two months or something. And then he said, you can reopen, but with distancing and all that. And so we reopened yeah. immediately, man, we did shut down, but we reopened immediately. And, um, and then of course, all the crazy culture stuff with LGBTQ and whatnot's going on. And man, did we ever have a lot of people come to us for two reasons. One is they wanted to worship somewhere and yep. their church was closed. That's right. And then also, 
their church was going wokey and putting in unisex bathrooms and whatever, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And, and so, uh, wow, exactly what you're saying. A lot of people who wanted the strong word and just give me the truth from the word um, came our way then. So, so the yeah. seeker sensitive movement in many ways, um, I think the next phase of that movement is they think if they can, again, be trendy enough, uh, which will mean softening their doctrinal stances. Mm -hmm. They can reach the unchristian and the scoffer, right? And the one who's denying reality. They think if, if if we don't talk, we don't talk against those things. If we just accommodate, then we can show them Jesus. And that's not, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. And it's going to lead to them dying because true believers aren't needing to be at a place that's soft peddling a, you know, um, kind of a candy gospel that's trying to tell people like, oh yeah, hey, you know, God loves you just like that. Just, you know, come on and be a part of what we're doing. And, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, we're open and affirming. And it's like, that's a pathway to death because those Christians who actually believe the Bible aren't going to stay in that church. And the people at the churches who are doing that aren't going to reach people they think they're reaching. Because again, the, the, the page is turned. Right. Identifying as a Christian is not going to give you anything. There's no yeah. perks and benefits coming. Yeah. So why do the, why do you think anybody's drawn to that? Um, I think it's a death spiral yeah. for those churches that do it. And I think a lot of secret sensitive churches are going that way. Plus, with all that softness and lack of doctrine, lack, lack of distinctions and things, um, you're not really presenting them Jesus. It's no. a very truncated Jesus, right? Jesus is speaking through the words of his apostles. Jesus Correct. is speaking in Ephesians. Romans is Jesus talking, um, using Paul's pen and so on. So you're not really Jesus, giving them Jesus. Jesus says that all who uh, are of me are of the truth. Yeah. Right? I mean, so here's the thing. You can't, if you're of the truth, then you're on Team Jesus. And if you're not in the truth, then you're not on Team Jesus because he is all about the truth. Truth. Amen. So in chapter three, I, you use a couple phrases that I really like. I'm going to run past one. I'll mention it. And then I want to park on the other one for a moment. Okay. You talk about low bar Christianity. And I think that's what we're talking about right now, yep. the seeker that's movement. Right. But that's, that's a right. cool term, low bar Christianity. We don't want to be low bar Christianity, man. We want to be high bar, like as high as the Bible sets the bar, as high as Christ and his apostles set the bar. We want to be right there, right? But that's what's bearing fruit. Absolutely. Yeah, amen. But uh, then then you use this phrase, and I want to know, did you make this up? I don't think so. I think I'd heard it before. Who started this phrase, moralistic, therapeutic deism? What is that, and where did it come from, you know? You know, I don't remember who first coined that. Um, I've, I've heard that now probably for about 10 years. Um, I'm sure we could we could run that down and, and hunt down who, who coined that. Huh. Um, what, what it means um, is simply a self-help, you know, therapeutic gospel that it's all about coming to Jesus for the, you know, the better financial yes. uh, principles Jesus can give you. Yes. It's the, the God who wants to help you to live, a, have a better family and raise nicer children. That's been for many years, what a lot of churches were peddling was a therapeutic, moralistic, you know, moralistic deism. Um, God is just here to help you to be a better person. And, um, and it will be good for you, right? It's therapeutic to, to, to grow and, and to find yourself and yeah. you know, that kind of, that kind of message. And, um, so, so what you, what you had in many ways are, are the moralistic therapeutic deism, right? Gospel. And then kind of the low bar Christianity gospel 
kind of run in parallel and sometimes overlapped. Uh, this is this was positive world and neutral world, you know, encapsulated. You know, that kind of stuff had some place when people wanted or needed to go for, you know, to make sure their social status or Christian card stayed uh, current. And now, now those things are irrelevant. Yeah. Throw in a little bit of victory preaching. Yep. Right. Oh yeah. Your enemy who might be your boss or your taxes or your whatever, who preaching against the enemy and you can have victory and all that. Victory, uh, breakthroughs, you know, yes. get your breakthrough, that That's kind right. of stuff. All that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. So I'm going to read a little piece from page 47 because I really liked it. So I'm going to read it and we can talk about it. You wrote page 47. Still, not a few professing evangelicals have tried at all costs to win acceptance and approval from extreme progressive voices. I call these evangelicals progressive light. It's like Bud Light, but it's progressive light. (laughs) These folks claim to hold a biblical sexual ethic, but never talk about it and refuse to criticize the damage of the LGBTQ plus revolution. People like you name Beth Allison Barr um, apologize to, quote, Chrissy Stroop and then yep. deleted her tweets and so on. So these professing believers seldom criticize unbiblical expressions of gender or marriage, but freely criticize the slightest perversion of the complementarian view. Uh, many of these folks profess to be politically neutral, but rarely criticize the harmful liter- liberal policies and positions while regularly distancing themselves from conservative political views. So I think you're talking there about um, the... This was James Wood, wasn't it? Did he did he's coin this that you uh, punch right and coddle left? Yeah, I don't know if he coined or not, but that's exactly the that's exactly the issue. Progressive lights want to maintain their their conservative credentials without ever saying anything conservative. <laughs> that's good, man. Say that again. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah, they, they want to maintain their conservative credentials without ever saying anything conservative. And the reason for that is because it costs them. They want acceptance so badly from the liberal elite in our society. And so they want to get as close to that line as possible so that they will be liked and not those kind of Christians. We're not that kind of Christian. Right, not You'll those like kind us. of Christians. Uh-huh. So they never talk about the corrosive just, you know, awful uh, things that uh, progressive ideology is ushering into culture. Like very rarely will you see, uh, for example, a Beth Moore ever criticize anything about the LGBTQ movement. Won't say a word. And yet it's very easy, very easy for her to take pop shots all day long at conservatives, yeah. right? But she would classify herself as a conservative Bible-believing Christian. That, yeah. That's that's the picture. And there are many, many, many. I'm not picking on Beth. Beth, Beth has actually been super kind to our family in the past with our son's mm. health issues. But mm. that's still reality. It's still, that's the posture. The posture is, is we, we're, 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 we're conservative, right? We believe the Bible's sexual ethics and we believe the Bible's view on gender, but we're never going to say that. We're never going to outline it. We're never going to talk about the um, the, the damage that's being done in the mm. in the church by the culture that's discipling our people on these new ideologies, and that's what they're doing. The culture is discipling. They're catechizing um, our every generation right through different mediums, music and television, and the education system education. and media. 
And, and so we never talk about that, but you let a conservative say something stupid that we would all say that was stupid. They pounce hmm. and they want to validate to the elites that we're not like them. And yet mm -hmm. they'll never say anything that would make the elites go, oh, you know, you're against that. And so they play this middle ground. That's why I call them progressive lights. They've, they've not really uh, adopted the ideology, at least we don't think they have. Hmm. Um, but boy, they want that acceptance from them really badly. Yeah. And then we get people in our churches. And I've had a little bit of this. Maybe you have too. Where uh, let's just say I haven't been preaching in Romans lately. Love to. A lot of places I'd love to preach, right? Man, yep. I want to preach everywhere. But um, let's say I'm preaching through Romans 1 and we come down to that. Those hard parts where Paul's yep. saying men with men doing shameful things and the women leaving the natural use and all that. Yep. And uh, what you're supposed to do is when you, when you get down to those verses, instead of just like really preaching faithfully, lovingly, uh, you know, appropriately preaching the content of the verses, what you do is when you get there, you take about 16 weeks and first apologize yes. for how how evangelicals have been so slow to right. treat people right. And so so you, you just apologize. Um, you, you, you pre you're preaching yeah. through Ephesians 5 and you come to wives, be submissive to your husbands. You don't really preach that. What you preach is, we're so sorry, this has been so abused yeah. by awful men and blah, men blah. Men have so, been abusive. Yeah. And yeah. no doubt some men have been abusive, but hey, the Spirit of God and the Apostle Paul didn't feel like they needed to put out four pages of caveat first before they just dumped the goods and said, why yep. be submissive to your husbands? That, that, and that's, the, that's a perfect picture of the progressive light um, approach. It's, it's we, we're not going to espouse conservative views. We're not rejecting them, per se, but we will point out to you every ill or wrong that's ever been done in the name of them. Yes. Yeah, and again, with that thing then, so see, we're not that kind of Christian. We're not them. The kind yeah, that would just preach like the text. Yeah. Yeah, yes. we're, so, we're so much trendier, right? We're so much more acceptable. Yep. And we're so much more palatable. And, and let's just be honest, that's enticing. Um, it's enticing to be liked mm. and be accepted because mm. the alternative um, stinks, right? To be yeah. name-called and maligned and, you know, all these things is not an easy thing to embrace, which is why Peter— denied Christ three times because associating with him in that courtyard was costly. Hmm. And, and so we live in the courtyard, right. Of Annas and Caiaphas. We live in the courtyard of there's opposition against Jesus. And to acknowledge you're one of his disciples is going to get the ear of the culture against you. It's going to, yeah. you're, it's going to, it's going to make you unpopular. And, and that's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. So what do we need? We need clear convictions, courage and fortitude and we yep. need to hold the line right we just need we to gotta stand. actually know what we believe and then we have to have the courage to believe it publicly yeah yeah amen to that so uh chapter five in your book is titled contend for the faith and you've got on page 58 churchill's famous fight on the beaches speech in there yep. i love that man i love churchill i got Me a too. i got men on my walls and churchill's one of them and mm, i love that guy i read churchill, all three yep. volumes of the last lion because they're yeah, too. you too yeah brother yep. there you go so why did you mention why is this chapter contend for the faith in there and you mentioned i love this phrase contending for the faith is an all skate Activity. It's an all skate. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, first off, Churchill single-handedly may be the reason why we're not speaking German. Amen. Uh, single-handedly save the world. Save the world because mm -hmm. he was unwilling to bow the knee to a tyrant. Um, he was willing to lose with integrity than to bow the knee to preserve himself. 
And we see, we see biblical pictures of that everywhere. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego do the same. Yeah. But the most recent one and really just powerful one is Churchill. And it's a reminder to us that the, the confidence and courage of one man to stand up for what was right and true rallied an entire nation and then nations and the to world. that cause. Yeah. In other and words, it really does make a difference. It really mm. can um, move the needle of what happens. And so thinking about that, when we think about what contending for the faith means, it means we need some more Churchillian type believers who are willing to say, even if the world's against me, even if they think we're crazy, even if they call us names, we're going to fight for the truth. We're going to contend for the faith. We're going to hold it out. We're not going to bow the knee, right? We're not going to tell and embrace lies, right? That, that's, and it's an all skate. It's not, we, it's not we need a couple church leaders to do it. It's not we need a pastor or two to do it. We need every congregant in the seat learning to be courageous to do this. And, you know, I, I call it an all skate for those who don't know, because when I was a kid, uh, we would go to the skating ring mm -hmm. and they would have certain groups that call out. Right. And there was a couple skate and there was a, there was games and there were these different types of things. Man and then only, at some point they would announce, it's an all skate. Everybody's on the, everybody's on the, on the rink. And, um, and that's what this is. Uh, continuing for the faith is not set aside for the pastors. It's an all skate for every believer. Excellent, man. So I'd like to talk about this lots more, but I'm conscious of the clock and I want to go to a different topic. It's related, but it's a different topic. So, yeah. and I'll make this the last one we talk about today. So, um, recently I saw you too. I follow you on Twitter. Thank you very much. You put up a lot of good stuff. Um, and there was a recent tweet about you meeting with businessmen slash entrepreneurs in your church yeah. who are actively seeking ways to increase their revenues and launch more businesses for the sake of funding ministry. Yep. Um, and you wrote, I liked this, any pastor can be doing this in their church. Yep. So yep. talk about it. I'm intrigued. Yeah, well, it started, <laughs> it started with need, right? So um, <laughs> our church has grown um, over the years and uh, we've never done a capital campaign. I'm not a, I'm not a fundraiser naturally. I don't like going and begging uh, wealthy donors for money. I don't, I've never met a pastor that is, uh, honestly, who, who likes that. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't get into ministry to go ask people to give us money. And um, so in 2018, we, we realized we had to have our, our first capital campaign. We were just tapped. We had no, we didn't have the resources that we needed to do the things we needed to do. Mm -hmm. We were at five services in our building. I was preaching two on Saturday, three on Sunday morning. I mean, oh, it was not sustainable. Good thing not you're a young man. And, um, and so we, we had additional in, ambitions that we wanted to run after in addition to a, a new space. We had staff we wanted to add. There was ministries we wanted to launch. So, hmm. you know, we wanted to launch a jail ministry and a, re a recovery ministry, lots of different things that, that are mercy ministry related. So we, we did a capital campaign um, to, to raise money for those things. And, and it was successful. We did it. Uh, we awesome. launched all those things. We added those staff members. We relocated our facilities. And then three years later, right back in the same Tapped boat out again, right back in the same boat, three years, and three years. Yeah. And that's what I was telling you that post COVID stuff, man. I mean, it, um, I mean, we've, our church has been, is transformed. Um, yeah. and so we, um, we were back in the same boat and so, of course, you know, we had a consultant firm that helped us the first time. Cause we're like, we've never done a capital campaign. What do we need to do? And, mm. um, the whole premise is, is you, you pay them pretty significant amount of money, but paying them, helps you to raise more money you could ever raise by yourself. Yeah. And so you're like, well, it's cost of doing business, but it's going to help us to do what we need to do. And we were back at it for a second time. And it was like, 
I just told a, a couple of people, I was like, I just don't want to go back to these same people and do this again. I'm just gonna be honest <laughs> with you. you know? um, there's a whole process where you have to be like, you know, you do three cups of coffee with these each individual and coffee cup one, you talk about this. And I was just like, this feels mm. gross. I hate this. I don't want to <laughs> do that. And um, so as a result, though, of that first round, here's what happened. I was able to build some relationships with um, business people and entrepreneurs in our church that previously I knew, but I didn't know, no, right. I didn't, um, I didn't understand their world very much. I didn't understand wealth and um, I didn't understand how they use assets and leverage those assets to gain and create more assets and how they use equity and assets to gain more assets. I didn't know anything about that space. And as a result of building relationships with them, I started learning about some of those things. And um, that knowledge coupled with knowing that we were about to go round two uh, on this thing, um, I, I kind of had this harebrained idea. Um, I, I was like, I don't know if this works, but rather than doing the traditional approach, which is, hey, the church has needs. Hey, wealthy entrepreneur, business guy, you've got resources. Can you sell something and give us the money? Right. Because wealthy people don't have uh, half a million dollars uh, sitting in their checking accounts Liquid. because that's not doing anything for them. Um, in fact, I was just talking to a guy yesterday who made the statement, you'll, I'll, I, it made me sick if I had a hundred thousand dollars sitting in my checking account, because uh -huh. it wouldn't be doing anything. Uh -huh. Literally yesterday, just had yeah. this conversation. Um, so that's their mentality. They're not sitting around with just liquid money. So if they're going to give you a large donation, they've got to sell something. They got to sell something. Yeah. Got to liquidate. So rather, so here's, here's the, here was the aha for me. Rather than asking wealthy businessmen, entrepreneurs who are skilled by God. Deuteronomy 8 says yeah, God right. gives the ability to make wealth. Yeah. God is the one who, lest they think they've done this by their own strength. Hmm. God has given them these skills and abilities and to make wealth. So um, if, if God has given them these abilities and these skills, why are we going to them and simply saying, hey, will you sell something and give us a one-time gift? Because one, not only do we decrease their wealth, we decrease our ability to go back to them again hmm. And, mm. and, and, and get them to fund more ministry. So I said, why would we not ask these people who are highly skilled, knowledgeable and experienced at multiplying wealth? That's what they do every day mm. is they use wealth to make wealth. Why would we not ask them to do more of that on purpose and maybe link on them purpose. up with some other like people? With, with a vision for this. It's intentional. Yeah, absolutely. D did they respond to that on purpose? 100%. with a, Yes. That resonated 100%. with them? Absolutely. I'm, 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 so here's what's happened. So as a result of it, I'm now helping other uh, pastors, I'm doing some consulting with other pastors and showing them how to launch this in their church because uh -huh. this is transformational. It is a, um, I, I'll give you two examples right now that's happening in my church just Good. right now. Um, we've got a guy who is a part of a land development deal that is going to generate $850,000 worth of revenue. And he's going to give 50% of that profit to the church. Sweet. One deal. Can, One deal. Can you can you give him my phone number? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, I was in a conversation. This the same guy I was in a conversation with yesterday who made the hundred thousand dollars statement. Um, he was giving me three or four things. He's got in the hopper that he's mm. like, yeah, you know, I, I've got this going on. So here's what's happened. I've given them a vision. Uh, some of them are doing stuff together now. That now they're networked together, oh. whereas many of them didn't know each other. Huh. Um, there's even discussions about forming some LLCs and launching some businesses together. Um, I met with a lady this week in our church who has a very profitable daycare in a neighboring city. And I met with her and said, hey, would you consider opening a second one here in Lebanon? 
and giving a large majority of the profits to the church. And she said, I'm actually have been thinking about that. Let, let's, let's talk some more. Pretty wild. Listen, once the, once people start catching the vision of this here, here's the game changer is it's not requiring them to liquidate their wealth. Hmm. They're actually, they get to make more. Yeah. They're growing their wealth, which they love and being more generous than they've ever been ever before. Win, and win. so the result of it is, is, and this is fascinating is they actually feel more connected to the church's vision than they ever have before. I believe it. These are the people who, before we started having this conversation, I mean, they may help out greeting people in the lobby. Like we gave them, we gave them things that are meaningful, but are not even in the ballpark of how they're actually gifted by God. And so all of a sudden when we can connect for them, something that they've just made as their side, you know, like, well, this is my secular job, take care of my family stuff. What we've done is we said, no, 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 leave a legacy for your family because it's great to leave something for your children's children. That's what Proverbs tells us. Um, but also be leaving a legacy for your faith and your church. In other words, God didn't just gift you this so that you could just have more stuff. Just your Nothing wrong with you being blessed with wealth. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't make them feel guilty for being wealthy. God doesn't. But what, what we do want them to feel responsible for is stewarding it because the the parable of the talent, the faithful, the faithful ones were the ones who multiplied what the master gave them Mm. for the master's glory. So that's the vision. Um, And our group, I mean, there's some cool stuff. I mean, I could could spend a lot of time talking about this, but so what I'm helping other churches do is realize, Hey, you've got these people in your church too. They're everywhere. Um, So it's about casting a compelling vision. It's about finding them, calling them to that vision and then organizing them to start generating revenue for the church. That's outside of tithes and offerings. Excellent, ma'am. Hey, all this has been really excellent. I want to thank you for joining us today. And I want to remind people once more, I won't hold it up for a fourth time, but uh, your book, Hold the Line, great book, folks. Get it, read it. It's not a huge book. You can read it in an evening or a couple evenings, depending on how long and how fast you read. But uh, Pastor Eric Reed, pardon me? I said we purposely keep it short. Purposely. So more people can and will read it. That's right. Yeah. Amen. So uh, thank you, Eric. Yeah. Um, Thank you all for being here with us on Grounded today. We come out twice a month on all the major platforms. And uh, if you like, hey, give us a little comment and maybe even share with a friend and you'll be helping us out. Thanks so much for being here. Hope to see you next time.